Okay. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how vast is the work of your voice. How amazing is the power that is demonstrated in your creation. How awesome, how incredibly, unfathomably awesome you must be. We lift this hour to you, O Lord. We beseech you that you would open our hearts and minds to your truth. You would reveal yourself to us in a, a new and important way. And that you would use that revelation in our hearts and minds to sanctify us to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so hopefully you get why I played that video. If all you knew about God was his power, his holiness his righteousness, his justice, and his wrath, what would your view of God be? One of the downsides of having a personal God is that he's close. And he is easy to bring down. Okay? If we don't get anything else, if, if I don't get anything out of this lesson, out of this study, I'm sorry, this study, I hope I walk away with the understanding that my Lord is far bigger than I can imagine. One of the comments on this video was, the only thing bigger than the universe is the human imagination. I think not. Okay? So anyway, today's lesson, I am not going to help you at all with your problem of making God too small. Because today's lesson, we're going to be talking about... uh, covenant presence. So we're going to actually be talking about today the, the, the very thing that is so amazing about this amazing God, this amazing Lord, is that He is not just a transcendent God. He is also an imminent God, closer to us than anything else. How amazing is that? The most powerful force in the universe loves you and me. Okay, um, 
We'll start with the covenantal triad because that we're on our third leg of the covenantal triad. We started out with control, right? Uh, then we discussed authority, and today we're going to look at presence. If y'all will recall, I believe it was Seth that covered the suzerainty treaty form. Uh, this is a literary form of a great king, a suzerain, who formulates a treaty with a lesser king, a vassal. The great king is the author. He sets the terms of the relationship. The document regularly includes the cert certain elements. The name of the great king. An historical prologue discussing the benefit of the, that the king has brought to the vassal in the past. Stipulations the vassal has, is expected to obey in gratefulness. Sanctions and blessings of obedience, curses for disobedience and continuity, provisions for public reading, royal succession, and adjudication. Do everybody, does, does anybody not see how the Pentateuch fits this form? Right? Okay, so, so far we have looked at in number two, the historical prologue where God talks about what he has done, well, basically that fits with the subject of control. The stipulations that we are expected to obey, that's God's authority. Why should we obey him? And those sorts of things. And today, we will be looking at his presence somewhat in terms of the sanctions, the blessings for obedience, and the curses for disobedience. Okay. I don't know. In the end, we may beat this poor passage to death, but we're going to be going over Ephesians 3 again. Uh, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro and the priest of Meridian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. The angel of the Lord. Who is this angel of the Lord? Interesting phrase, wouldn't you say? Give you pause. Well, I believe we can, let's, rather than speculating, let's let Scripture tell us what the, what, who the angel of the Lord might be. Then he showed me Joshua, Joshua, the high priest, standing before, this is Zechariah 3. The angel of standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, and to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away, you from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Who can that angel of the Lord possibly be? Later on, I think we will see even... even so, the point being is, is that what we have here is a Christophany. Okay? This is Christ. 
in the burning bush speaking to Moses. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to, to the Mos, out, out of, called, to, called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. R.C. Sproul points out that this response right here, to hide one's face is the human response to the presence of God. When we truly step into the holy, we know nothing if not the distance between us and our Maker. So about the burning bush, what would you say the burning bush symbolizes? Well, some thoughts on that are that it comes, that basically the burning bush symbolizes the zeal of God. It comes in, who comes in judgment, who devours what is impure, and although it burns, it does not consume. This scene in a way, signifies the pure holiness of God, and Moses recognizes it. Also notice that God is in the midst of the bush, and He is burning. He is among His people, and He does not annihilate them. Think about it. The power of this God is such that how could we possibly exist in its presence? And yet we do. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land of good, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezzarites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, 
But I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So, put yourself in Moses' shoes. He's he's 80 years old. He's out in the field, you know, taking care of sheep. (laughs) Been doing that for years. (laughs) And all of a sudden, God comes to him and he says, I want you to go to the greatest known power in the world, and I want you to tell the most powerful man in that nation to let my people go. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I understand Moses, you know, saying I'm all of a sudden thinking, having an identity crisis here. <laughs> Who am I that you should send me? And notice that God does not answer his question. He doesn't tell him who he he is, except to explain where he stands in relation to himself. God says, I am with you. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So up until this point, God has been referred to in Scripture as Elohim, the God. Okay? Here in this event, God reveals himself by a name called the Lord or Yahweh. Right? Okay. So Moses asks, Who am I? So we're going to do a. So we're going to. Let's, hopefully, this will be fun. Okay, so we're going to look at a little Hebrew. So the passage where God answers him is, I will. And you have to read this from right to left. I will be. With you. A ye is I will be. Okay? And with that, he basically says, He, so, so God, rather than answering who Moses is, he says, It doesn't matter who you are, you're my man. I'm sending you, and I will be with you. All right? So God covenants with Moses right then and there. You go, and I will be with you. So Moses, then his next question is, okay, who are you? (laughs) 
So think about this. It's been 400 years. 400 years. Okay, how old is the United States of America? Almost 240 years old, right? Okay, anybody going to bet that America will still be in existence another 160 years from now? Anybody want to take that bet? <laughs> of course, none of us will be here to collect it, but it's kind of hard to picture the United States as, an, as being a nation of that the, like it is today, even 160 years from now. And that would be 400 years. 400 years. And in that whole time, God has probably been silent. He spoke to the forefathers, and the forefathers passed on in clearly very strong terms what God had revealed about himself to them. And Israel held on to, the, to that notion of God. God had promised. But think about it. 400 years. They are now oppressed in slavery and have been so for generations. 400 years. Why wouldn't Moses ask, who are you? We haven't heard from you for 400 years. Who are you? Okay? And so God answers him. God doesn't get mad. He answers him. And he says, I am that I am. Now then, I'd like for you to look at these three words. I am. I am. And I will be. They're the same. And I think Seth kind of pointed this out. It was AA as being, as being a word that basically has to do with to be, all right? Or being, or to be present, be now. And thus, God says, I am. And Asher, well, that could be who, or what, or that, or because. And so if you take all of that and you put it together, what could God be saying? He might be saying, I am who, what, that, because I am. And any one of those would make sense. Any one of those would reveal something about his character and nature. I am who I will be. I am what I will be. I am that I will be. I am because I will be. Is any one of those statements false about the Lord? Now then, I'll ask you. So, so Hebrew in this word is incredibly rich and power and expresses something incredibly powerful. Okay? That is lost to the English. Look at how many words it takes to try to express what the simple word I am, I be, expresses in Hebrew. Now, we've been looking at who's in control of such things. I wonder if it was an accident. 
that this word in Hebrew is this rich. I wonder who's in control, who was in control of that. Frame points out that the I am in verse 14, right here. I'm sorry. Well, we won't go back. The I am, where God says, I am that I am, connects God to Israel just as God has already connected himself to Moses. Right. And, 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 you're, and you're stepping on my, one of my points. Okay, so for the benefits of the uh, recording, I've noticed in the recordings that any statements that are made in the audience do not come across in the recording, and so it's kind of weird. For the benefits of the recording, Dennis just, sta- just noted that we need to note, too, that this is not a new Lord, that this is the Lord who was the, the God of the forefathers 400 years ago. Okay. All right. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, Oh, I'm sorry, I've read that, haven't I? So then he goes on to say, Go, gather the others, elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you. And what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he goes on to say, not only will I take you out by, and we've already looked at this, huge displays of my power but as you leave the Egyptians will be so excited that you're leaving that they're going to pay you to go and you're going to plunder them without war before you leave and what is God doing God is proving to his people that there is no God like Him. God is proving to the world for generation to generation that there is no God like Him. Okay, now, God has basically... We we touched on the fact that that in this passage, Jesus reveals Himself as the Lord. And um, so let, I would, I, we, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about this word Yahweh. Much of this comes from Edward J. Young, um, and I have my research assistant to thank for these notes. It happens to be Aletha. Um, oops, wrong thing. 
Um, I had read the, the article, but I didn't have time yesterday to kind of get it summarized, so I gave it to her, and I said, would you read this and give me a synopsis of it? And I only gave her a little part to read, and she said, well, I couldn't just read that. I had to read this, and I had to read that, and here, and here you go. <laughs> okay, so the commonly accepted interpretation of Yahweh. For the Semite, to know the name of someone is to know something about them. And I think it's very evident that in this case, in this choice of the Lord, Jesus is speaking volumes about who he is and what his nature is. And in this Christophany, he has spoken even more volume about who he is and who Yahweh, the Lord, is. Keep in mind, there is this fire burning in this bush, and the bush is not consumed. That the ground upon which Moses stands is holy. Okay? And Moses understands that holiness even before he actually knew who the Lord was. Moses understood that holiness because Moses' first reaction was to hide his face. All right? And I've already touched on the fact that prior to this, but now Yahweh, He is the being one. He who is. I am. I am He who is. I am I am self-existent. All right, these next ideas come from Sproul. Self-existent. Sproul points out that God's aseity, which is his self-existence, the fact that he is whole and complete in and of himself, is captured in this word of Yahweh. In evolutionary theory today, there is this problem. We ha- we, there is existence. Where did existence come from? There is matter. Where did it come from? How did it come to be? Is it eternal? I don't know that anybody can get their ra- minds wrapped about it. So, so what is the explanation for why there is existence today? Spontaneous generation. You should listen to Sproul. Some of y'all have heard Sproul talk about this, okay? All right? (laughs) He makes it sound laughable. He really does. Spontaneous generation. And today, well, okay, so the... You know, that actually violates evolutionary theory, so we can't have spontaneous... We have to have gradual, spontaneous generation. But that's not who Yahweh says. Yahweh says, I am and have always been. There has never been a time when I was not. I am. I am self-existent. Anselm pointed out 
that there is an ontological necessity here. He cannot not be. And there is a logical necessity here. He is the being that has to be. In order for existence to exist, God has to be. The Lord has to be. God here speaks to Moses in a revelatory way. And he reveals himself to be the loving and true God. For he has heard their cries, and he has come. He is eternal in living. And that would be in contrast to what? The pantheon of gods that existed in the Middle East at that time, including the pantheon of gods that existed in Egypt. God is going to walk into the very throne of power of Egypt, and He is going to bring that throne to its knees. He is unchanging, And yet he is living and can relate to his creation. God is imminent. He is able to make himself known through his actions and his deeds. Again, this will be in contrast to the idols that he will basically, people will view him as confronting. Their gods will not be able to stand before this God. And he is willing to dwell imminently in the midst of his people. And he is personal. God is speaking to Moses. And God will speak to his people. And yet, and in, but he is also transcendent. Despite all of this, he exists independent of his creation. Only, only one who in all his attributes and perfections is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable can do this. And that is Edward J. Young. Frame goes on to say, He is the God who is there, present to deliver his people from Egypt. Frame quotes Peter Toon. Yahweh is God with his people. So, I think if, if, you, st- if you stop and think, there, there's a myriad of ideas coming across here, right? This, this notion of self existence, this notion of being, this notion of perfection, this notion of covenant this notion of presence. And it's all in the Word. 
the Lord. Wrap your head around that if you can. Okay, so we have not only, okay, so this presence. And so let's, Frames comes up with this term, the Emmanuel principle. So what is Emmanuel? Well, I think it's defined here, isn't it? No, it isn't. What is Emmanuel? God with us. Okay, go back. The being that spoke this universe that we cannot, that we don't even know the expanse, the extent of. We can't reach it. We can't reach beyond a certain limit. The being who spoke this into existence is with us. I want to go back. How can we, how, how is it not, how is it possible? How would we not be annihilated in, in that presence? How would we not? Love. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> his grace and his mercy, too. But it starts from love. And it's not our love. It's His love. And I just, I, I you know, put in this light, I mean, if, if, if you, it, it, is, we, it is so difficult. The problem, as I said, now God is imminent. God is here with us. God is near. And God loves us. God is our Father. Okay? And, and our analogies are such, are so paltry, so tiny, so little, that we can't keep the notion that this Father is that Lord. I can't. I'll tell you that. I'll admit that straight up. I cannot keep it in my head. All right? But when I stop and I think about it, I'm blown away. It just, you know, it's like shocking to me. All right. I'm going to keep moving. This is the one. This And the... And then Frame goes on to point out, this is one of the most precious concepts in Scripture. The essence of the covenant is that God, the Lord, is our God, our Lord, and we are His people. So back in Genesis 17, God is talking to Abraham, and He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Okay, 
Who was Abraham? Well, he's just a fellow in Ur. And God told him, I need you to get pack up and I need you to go to a land that I will show you. I don't know how he spoke to Abraham and I don't know how Abraham figured out that that's possibly something that he should do, but he did it. Okay? All right, we're talking about one guy. Okay? And his family, of course. And he packs up and he heads to Israel. Now then, how many one guys in, in all of history have there been? But who do we know about? And who throughout the generations has, in fact, had his offspring preserved? Okay? And we're not talking about the nation of Israel, although that nation exists today. We are talking about God's people. One little, one man, one family. And God has kept that, He took that little flame and He has called to Himself a people of His own choosing and made His own kingdom of them. And one day... And one day, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Can we have confidence in that? Well, he's proven faithful for 4,000 years. Has he not? John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What do you think, what do you think John felt as he wrote that? We have seen Yahweh. I sat beside Yahweh. I was a friend of Yahweh's. And it was glorious. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Frame says, in the meantime, God dwells with Israel in the tabernacle and in the temple and supremely in Jesus, God living with his people in the tabernacle of flesh, Emmanuel. Through Christ, God's people themselves are his temple, the dwelling of his spirit. Covenant presence then means that God commits himself to us to be our God and to make us his people. All right, let's have a little bit of fun. So here's our triad, authority, control, and presence. And I'd like to do a couple of alliterations with you. First of all, we'll start with C. So we'll go with command in place of authority. We'll keep control since it starts with C. And we will add commitment for presence. God is committed to his people. Or let's take A. So we'll start with authority. And then we will, instead of control, we'll say action. God is able to act in any way to achieve what he wishes to achieve. And affiliation. God is affiliated with me. God is affiliating himself with you. And he's chosen to do so. What a wonderful thing. Okay, God in time. It was 400 years And yet I am the God of your father, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac. Ah, okay. I can't read it. In Exodus 3.15, God said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent you to me. This is my name forever. Thus I will be remembered throughout all the generations. We are to remember him as Yahweh. In this context, this is frame, in this context, the name I am surely refers, among other things, to Yahweh's constancy over time. And here you go, Dennis. He is the same God that he was in Abraham's time. And he will be the same God forever. He is always present, always remembering his covenant. 
Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. All right. Here's another time thing. John 8. Pharisees are talking, or the Jews are talking to Jesus. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered them, If I glorify myself, I glory is, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him... I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, Well, you're not 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was... I am. Anybody want to argue with me that the angel of the Lord was not Christ, was Christ was not Christ? The Jews understood what he was saying. They picked up stones. They were going to stone him right then and there. Jesus announces that his, his significance, this is frame, Jesus announces that his significance closes the gap between Abraham's time and his own. I am, here again, indicates the continuity of the Lord's presence over time. Jesus was present to Abraham and present to all times. He is the I am. Presence in place. He is the God who is here. So God has been present in specifically special places throughout Scripture. He was in the burning bush, and as a result, the ground that he was on, that he stood, that Moses stood on, was holy ground. He was on Mount Sinai, and he spoke to his people from there. And what was their response? The same as Moses's. A little different, actually, was don't ever do that to us again. He was in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He was in the tabernacle. He was in the temple. And yet, 1 Kings, 
but the will, but will, and this is Solomon praying, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord, my God. Listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer of your servant that your servant offers towards this place. He was present with us in his his incarnation, And he is united to his people through his spirit. You and I are the presence of Yahweh. You and I are his eminence today. But God's presence among us, frame again, in all its forms, is an asset of His overall covenant presence. And it conveys the intimate fellowship of the covenant. He is our God. We are His people. All right, presence and blessing and judgment. The covenant is is two-sided. There are both blessings and curses. To Moses, he said, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said... I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. And then, a few verses later, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Frame goes on to say, Some might say that we cannot take comfort in these passages because they not only speak of blessing and curses, but they also speak of judgment and curse. And then this, I have... This is my emphasis. But he asked, Who of us deserve the blessing of the covenant? Do not our sins place us under the curses. But, thanks be to God, that in Christ, the true temple... Believers have all the richness of God's covenant blessings. In Christ, we experience His compassion, His grace, His slowness to anger, His love, His faithfulness, His forgiveness. The covenant name Yahweh, which Christ makes His own, means all these things to us. Christ the true temple. And I'll just ask you to reflect on what might be the consequences of that 
in terms of our union with him. But I can't pause because I'm already out of time. The presence in all creation. Psalm uh, 139, 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, you, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's covenant began with creation itself. In Genesis 1-2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God delivered the world from darkness and the waters. Hitting the wrong button. Oh, goodness. I sure didn't mean to do this, but for some reason, I did. The covenant between God and Adam extends to the whole human race, and we are all breakers of it. And if we had time, we could go to Romans 5, 12 through 21. And we are all also partakers of the Noahic covenant. We all rely upon His promise that we will not fall victim to a malevolent universe. So in summary... So the Lord is presence everywhere and to everyone as the one who blesses and curses according to his covenant. He is unavoidable, closer to us than anyone else. We cannot escape him. As his control and authority are absolute, so is his presence. And by absolute presence, we mean that without him, there could, not be, there could be no meaning, no significance, no purpose in anything. And I would add, there can be no existence whatsoever. We also mean that He is the one with whom we have most to do. Therefore, the most important thing in life is to have a good relationship with God, to be His obedient covenant servants, His faithful friend, His body and bride, his temple. All right, we're done.